0: up gang thanks for listening to the undiplomatic podcast the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene i'm your host van jackson my guest today is a very good friend he wears many hats he's my brother from another mother ken goffigan cooper welcome to the show brother what's good
1: hey man good to be here my brother
0: so, do you want to introduce yourself real quick, and you know, plug some of your affiliations, and maybe plug PCIS?
1: Sure. So, I'm Kenneth Gofegen Cooper. I'm here at the University of Guam, uh, part of their research center called the Micronesian Area Research Center. Um, I just—I used to be in the political science program, moved over here, and now I'm in charge of the sort of geopolitics Micronesian politics research agenda. Loving it. Uh, tomorrow. Indigenous person uh, from Guam in the Marianas, born and raised here, and uh, I also co-founded a organization called the Pacific Center for Island Security. Uh, and essentially, what we try to do is analyze all of these geopolitical developments, but from an island and islander perspective, uh, and a perspective that, quite frankly, we we think is lacking. Yeah, so uh, that's my life, man. And I'm a huge heavy metal fan. I always need to plug them.
0: Nice. I respect that. Yeah. So. The for people who don't know, you know, PCIS and Ken himself even is like I mean, they're at you're at the intersection of defense strategy and the Pacific, like you said, kind of from an islander perspective, but you're also fluent in the defense stuff in a way that makes you able to kind of have a conversation and to critique. What you know the Pentagon does, what various militaries do, and their their imaginations about the Pacific. But unlike everybody who does defense strategy stuff, you're one of the few. I mean, I could count on fucking one hand, who knows the Pacific, who is the Pacific, you know, and and that's a rare, rare thing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it was so important to get you on. This is going to be an unusual episode because we're kind of riffing off the cuff about many things, whatever you want to talk about, frankly, but um, especially Guam, the non-sovereign Pacific, which is crucially mm-hmm. crucially important term, you know, uh, militarism, warfighting strategy, how all this stuff concatenates, intersects. But for people who don't know, you know, I recently spoke at a Track 2 dialogue in Fiji, shout out to University of the South Pacific, and it was about geopolitics and security of the pacific it was kind of a mind-blowing trip for me in certain ways and the the dialogue brought together this really important concentration of of critical voices ken was chief among them ken was at this event and we ended up shooting the shit for like three straight days walking and talking and plotting for hours getting <laughs> yeah getting lost and sweaty <laughs> for hours and uh i want to talk to you about that ken at some point in the episode like reflections on the the fiji track too and you know what what you had to say to the group and all that but maybe it's good to start with some guam shit right up front
1: yeah, yeah.
0: introductory stuff you know what's what what is it, what is some of the political history and context that you could give us to kind of set us up
1: I'll just go on and you can stop me whenever, man. Yeah, yeah. Guam, so you know the indigenous people, uh, my people were Chamorros, um, the Tomorrow people. Um, you know, we're we're an Austronesian people and essentially we had our own livelihoods and society, and then the Spanish came and really, you know, even though the Spanish visited with Magellan, you know, uh, shout out to your people for, for killing him, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: <laughs> for people who don't know i'm half filipino <laughs>
1: <laughs> so shout out that we came pretty much catholicized christianized and we went through a pretty uh, interesting period where this was the first encounter with the colonizer and then you know spanish-american war happens we transition uh we become under the u.s navy and pretty much at that time bro there was only a naval governor right so whoever was like mm-hmm. the highest ranking officer in the united states Navy that was there in Guam ran Guam like a ship. And it was filled with all these executive orders. I'll give you one example. There was this one governor who, like, forbade whistling in certain areas of Guam. And, you know, uh, they would ban religious processions. And so, whatever they were up to, yeah. they rotated every two years, but some stayed a little bit longer. Um, so we were from the Spanish to the Americans. And then during World War II, four hours after Pearl Harbor was bombed, uh, Guam was bombed. Right. And eventually invaded and taken. And so the Japanese um, military was here for almost roughly three years until the United States defeated them, took Guam back. And we've been sort of under um, the American flag again since that period. So post World War Two. We're uh, unincorporated territory of the United States, which is a term that most people have no idea what it is, you know, a lot of people in Guam don't even know what it is. You know, it's a very complex thing. There are a bunch of us, um, you know, US Virgin Islands, um, American Samoa. And then of course you have Puerto Rico and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and maybe a little bit different in some aspects, but quite frankly, being an unincorporated territory in the global context just means we're a modern day colony man. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, let's see. So when did Tomorrow
0: get U.S. citizenship?
1: We really see the blanket through the Organic Act of Guam in 1950, uh, which set up the local government as well. So the government of Guam was created in 1950 by legislation, essentially. The Congress passed this Organic Act which structured the modern government of Guam. So our government is still dictated by the Organic Act of Guam today, mm. even though there have been amendments over time. But, you know, we don't... um. We don't have any electors in the Electoral College. We don't have any representation in the Senate. We only have a non-voting representative in the House. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this small part of the the U.S. Constitution called the Territorial Clause, and that's the only real part you're going to find, the word territory. Uh, And so essentially we're under the plenary power of the United States Congress. And so that's our basic relationship to the United States from a political level. But, you know, we're also... Roughly 27% of our land, and we're a 212 square mile island. 27% of our land um, is currently occupied by the United States military. Uh, We can go into the military stuff a little later if you like, but quite frankly, you can't divorce the political status of Guam with the fact that Guam um, is heavily militarized. We have three main, the the Air Force, Anderson Air Force Base up in the north. You have Naval Base Guam, uh, mainly in the south. And then you have the newest sort of Marine Corps base that has been activated since the 50s called Camp Blas here in Guam. So for 212 square miles, man, that's, that's quite a lot of military.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you have to think no sovereign nation would sign over a third of their fucking land to a foreign military. You know, that is a, like a condition of possibility to occupy that much space right. is Guam's lack of self-determination, right? And then Camp Blas, the new Marine, like the firing range complex and the new Marine presence that's surging, that is on the back end, basically, of a deal between the U.S. and Japan that goes back to the Bush administration. So it's, you know, the, the Bush administration sought to alleviate some of the pressures of American military presence in Japan because they didn't want to strain the alliance. And, you know, the Japanese people are like, these GIs are, you know, raping our women and having military accidents and all kinds of, you know, causing causing ruckus. And so the, it's like civil society, especially in Okinawa, wants to get troops out or at least, you know, minimized. So the Bush administration pushes, uh, uh, or makes an agreement with Japan to push some of these troops, the Marines, to Guam, as a way to alleviate the burden of being an alliance with the united states in american policymaker mind those are all just the facts and it's like well that's reasonable we're 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 listening to our allies or whatever the fuck right right? but like when you think about what that really means it means that america is trading against again the non-sovereignty of guam to alleviate the pressures of a country that does have sovereignty
1: You know what I mean? Right. We're we're the bargaining chip. We're the fallback position. And so, you know, that's really our current. It seems like our predetermined destiny from the United States perspective. Right. Is like I remember reading reading this one quote, this military strategist was essentially saying, if we ever had to abandon our positions in Japan and Korea, we could withdraw to places like Guam where we have an inherent right to be. I, I, I like that inherent right to be. And so, you know, that's such a (laughs) just a sanitized version of like how Guam was acquired. What are the current sort of perils of living in an unincorporated territory today? Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, every especially with the new escalating U.S.-China tensions, which you see more and more is Guam's. In every document you read, you're going to have a Guam mentioned somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're the people that are living in that place that's being prepared for this, though. And so i think it's important to hear our perspective and also you know we have a first-hand look at what's going on on the ground and so yeah it's it's an interesting perspective being from here Uh, To at the we're at the forefront and we have the front row of the geopolitical competition and that's not a front row seat you want to have man it's almost like you know (laughs) when you're at certain shows and it's like if you're in the front row you're gonna get wet yeah man we want to be in the back dude you know (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah, I mean, so maybe before we get into the military stuff, the there's a really important political context or a bubbling movement. I don't know how you would describe it. Actually, I want you to describe it, actually. The Decolonization Commission, you know, sure. what is it? When did it get set up? And then maybe we can talk through the strategic choices, pros and cons.
1: Yeah, so the so there is the government of Guam does have a commission on decolonization. Uh, I'm a voting board member currently right now, but it's not a new thing. It's new in name. Mm -hmm. So the commission on decolonization started in 1997, but there were iterations before that. It used to be called the commission on self-determination, but there were the legislation in the the legislature in the seventies also had um, political status commissions. So I think the overarching point is that even after Tomorrows received citizenship in 1950, uh, received civilian government, no longer under the Navy, that still didn't satisfy you know, our aspirations for self-government. We, we understood even after that. We fought for a long time to get U.S. citizenship because we believed that it would help protect us against some of the excesses of the Navy. Yeah, it wasn't but just as
0: as on offer. That. It was something you guys pushed for.
1: Right. All these political... The current political reality of Guam, as imperfect as it is, we fought for a lot of these things. I give you an example: we used to not be able to uh, vote for our own governor, even after we had civilian government. The governor was appointed, right? Um, and so we had to fight. We struggled, and eventually we got elective governorship. That's one example. We fought to get a non-voting House, a non-voting House of Representatives delegate, right? We're not considered a; they're not considered representatives; they're called delegates. Yeah. Um, and so. Marjorie Taylor are... Green
0: doesn't let you forget it. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah. My favorite. Taylor <laughs> Green. Um, but yeah, man, so, you know, we've, we have a long history of political struggle. Tomorrow's have not been complacent, have not been silent and understanding that there are inequities and equalities that there are, we deserve better. Um, so that iteration after we got civilian government, you know, we had constitutional conventions. But then the real question was, why should we have a constitution if we haven't settled our political status? Mm-hmm. So political status sort of took the train, and we've been riding that train. Um, and so currently, in 2024, you know, the Commission on Decolonization were trying to work with the legislature. Well, the legislature, leg- primary the legislature's job is to craft a new new bill. Uh, because we actually got struck down by, by the United States legal system for saying that a native inhabitant only vote for Guam's self-determination plebiscite was essentially racist. Um, and so that's the sort of rhetoric we're also dealing with. You know We're people who have been dispossessed, We're people who have never chosen our political destiny. Yet when we try to um, you know say that those who suffered the harms of colonialism, should be the ones that choose the future political destiny of Guam. Mm-hmm. We're called racist, national interest says we're the Jim Crow of the Pacific. And so we're just dealing with all of these permeating, you know, all these layers that are permeating into personal lives. And so it's a it's a really fundamental issue, but
0: but yes, yeah, the, yeah. the surge of
1: the surge
0: of, you know, US troops like adding thousands more in a small already small population Over time, migrants basically through the military plus, you know, native citizens moving out or moving into the continental U.S., that has displaced the Chamorro population within Guam a little bit. Like the ability for everyone in Guam to vote for something like self-determination is the outcome of that's going to be skewed by the fact that you have a bunch of people who are newish to Guam and they come under the auspices of their military service or whatever. And so not allowing the Chamorro to determine Guam's fate basically is a way, it's like a rigged game, you know, like at that point you can't actually determine the country's fate, the nation's fate. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and so I think these are really interesting conversations to be had, right? Because You have people who were born and raised here who are not, uh, you know, ethnically tamoru. And, uh, you know, they feel, some of them feel like they're not being given a right. And so these are very difficult conversations to have at times. But the position of the Commission on Decolonization, our mandate is to essentially educate the public about the different status options. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I, I speak on one hand as an individual and then another as a board member. Um, And so we released a study, I think you could see it back there, that's about, in total, 700 pages, that is the basis of our educational campaign. Um, It doesn't make anything look pretty, it's realistic, I think, in many ways, but it's just, if Guam were to transition into a different political status, uh, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you write very well in dissent, we're we're not... (laughs) we're we're not faced with any clear status that will be problem free you know i think that's a romantic view of decolonization we don't yeah. take that perspective right it's going to be a bumpy road um but it's a, word, a road worth taking in my personal opinion
0: yeah yeah to the, i think some people a lot of people a lot of americans are not interested maybe in even contemplating self determination for a place because of its geopolitical importance or something like that because of how it features in strategy, which we'll talk about, uh, or they just, it's not in their imagination at all. You know, like the Marjorie Taylor green view of like Guam is a foreign country. And it's like, well, if it's a foreign country, then treat us like a foreign country, (laughs) you know, but, uh, I'll I'll put that aside. You know, she's in solidarity with us. (laughs) She just didn't know. Yeah. But like to say, decolonization requires self-determination is not to say that Guam automatically breaks away. And so the strategic choices on the table, one alternative future, and you can you could talk about the likelihood of these things, you know better than me. One alternative future is very much statehood. I mean, like formal incorporation into America yeah. with full rights and obligations, including voting members in the Congress, which... You do not have right yeah. where the governor, the governor is an actual governor and not the sort of intermediary head of state position in.
1: Right. I mean, so our options were statehood, free association with the United States of America and independence, right, which correspond to the integration, free association um, with another state and then emergence as a sovereign independent state. Um, so. It's a very interesting misconception that people think decolonization like inherently means anti United States mm-hmm. or anything like that. Because there are a bunch of people in Guam who are very supportive of decolonization who don't want to be a territory but actually advocate for a closer relationship with the United States. Whether or not that's feasible, well, Guam is rather smaller geographically. Population is only about you know roughly around one hundred sixty thousand. And so it will take some convincing. Um, however, it just shows that we cannot blanket label decolonization as this, like, leftist agenda of... I don't, I'm don't. i talking about things that we were often called just because we support decolonization. Yeah. Leftist agenda, yeah. American hating, all of these uh, just really these arguments that don't make much sense. You know what I mean? So we live in this really... Uh, perverted landscape here in Guam, I think. Sometimes logic goes to die. Um, and I say that quite strongly. And, you know, um, it's like if you support, if you don't support the U.S. military taking land, then do you hate my brother who's in the military? You know, like, just people can make these logical stretches. And it's like, nah, I got family in the military. But it's like, come on, man. Like, we don't have to go to these extremes. Yeah. Right. So that's that's, a, that's another layer of... Um, to discuss, right, is really people in Guam themselves, right? My own people were also divided on whether or not decolonization is a good thing. We're also divided on whether we should oppose militarization and militarism. And I think that's the more interesting question there, right? So we're not like a, if we voted tomorrow, it's not like 98% of the people are going to come out strongly in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think our own internal, um, disagreement adds another layer of complication to this whole process man
0: Yeah I mean I I suppose we've hit the point but to talk of decolonization in Guam is not this it's not remotely the same thing as what we mean when we talk about like decolonizing a syllabus or something you know like those are I don't want to like treat those things as trivial but like there's kind of way that decolonization figures in discourses in academia which is fine but controversial and it's not material for the most part and with guam it's material and existential and and literal it's literally right. unreverse reverse colonize this and what comes right, out on right. the other end we don't know but it won't be a colony anymore <laughs> and so like right. that's an important process to undertake you know
1: yeah and that's the thing is like this is you know, we are talking about decolonization in various ways, you know, decolonizing the mind, of course, but yeah. like actual political decolonization that we saw from the era of decolonization in the 60s, that's the sort of remaining, we're the 17 left in the world according to the UN list, right? There mm-hmm. should be more on that list, but non-self-governing territories that should be able to exercise the right to self-determination, were on that list. So that's another thing I like to tell people in Guam, you know, we're not separatists, we can't yeah. separate from something that we're not actually a part of, right? Because the per the insular cases, unincorporated territories belong to what are not an integral part of the United States. So, you know, that, that's where we lie. Um, yeah. And yeah, man.
0: Well, anytime the Secretary of the fucking Interior has massive influence over your fate, something's wrong i mean that's not <laughs> the secretary of the interior shouldn't have fucking like any power except over like forests or you know like parks or something the idea yeah, that
1: the insular yeah. affairs yeah. Your interior. You're right. Yeah.
0: okay so you just got back from palau are you yep. able to talk about that trip at all like what what you sort of fact found on the ground or your research
1: yeah, so I mean, I think it was. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Palau, and there, there may be better people to talk to about this. But you know, just in general, what we're seeing is Palau, US military is getting a lot more interested in Palau. Palau is a freely associated state. Right. So visa mm-hmm. compacts of free association. Yeah. There are there are articles within that that allow for US use of land and water. Right. So. But because of the renewed geopolitical resurgence that we're seeing in the region, we see that Micronesia is becoming important again. So they're building a, a more radar, radar system. That's the plan right now. Um, there's a state in the northern part of Palau called Ngarar, and then also an island that's not part of what, quote unquote, the mainland. Angar is where they're building another part of that, of that um, system Mm -hmm. and so basically I went there for two reasons right number one was to my wife's never been so I spent like two days just taking her around and then the rest was just just to sort of get an idea talk to some folks about what's going on in Palau and I guess what you're seeing is Palau's being prepped for militarization right um how do we put this lightly there was a environmental assessment. A lot of Palawans believe that the environmental assessment for the site in Narard was heavily lacking, right? Um, and that it needed more stringency. I don't even know that's a word, man, but stringency, I'll say stringency, and it, it needed to be more rigorous in its assessment. environmental
0: assessment was... Right, was, was lacking. Was weak,
1: yeah. It was weak, right? But in Nangar, they're already clearing Right, they're clearing land and they're clearing, um, you know, forest essentially a jungle, however you want to call it, in order to make way for this system. And so the the governor of Angar actually sued, um, I believe the Palau government and the United States government. There was a technicality that was the latest I know, um, in which they, because of that technicality, the the lawsuit is in this very interesting place. Um, and so. I really wanted to go out there and I think this is important because here in Guam, we're used to taking the brunt of U.S. military activity in Micronesia, mm-hmm. but we're starting what we're starting to see. And this is something i talked about in Fiji, which we can talk about more a little bit later, is the U.S. military spreading out in Micronesia. Yeah. Right. In order to not be as predictable and in order to have contingency plans, essentially. So, um, you know, I, I talked to various folks, none which I'm going to name. Um, but there is a sense from certain individuals, that there are overlapping interests at play here, right? Sort of the and uh, I'll stop it there. I mean, we can talk about it uh, offline sometime, but yeah, I need a
0: yeah. No, no, I understand. You're you're in a, a funny position because you're actually interacting with with policymakers and politicos there and stuff. So Micronesia, Ken is referring to Micronesia. He's talking about. The region Micronesia within the Pacific Islands, right? And Federated States of Micronesia, FSM, is one semi sovereign, freely associated country within Micronesia.
1: Micronesia yeah. yeah.
0: So Guam is part of Micronesia, but there's also right. an FSM. We're talking about a, a region, not a country. So,
1: right, right. So, yeah, you are correct. David Penwillo was the former president of the Federated States of Micronesia. Yeah, he's he's been going around and sort of, yeah, sounding off the alarm for China for, you know, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, Atlantic Council. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's a rather interesting position because he wrote a very long letter near the end of his presidency, essentially, calling China out on a bunch of issues and saying that like he was followed around um, China has been ex- using coercive um, coercive mechanisms to influence the government
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and he, but then as soon as the new president of the FSM came into power he was at, at, oh I, and I must point out Panuelo was flirting with the idea and trying to convince people of the idea of switching recognition from the PRC to Taiwan yeah. Uh, And of course, as soon as the new president came in, it was like, no, that's not going to happen, right? The FSM has good diplomatic relationships with the People's Republic of China. And so, you know, there's, and he even mentioned in an interview, I think, with Radio New Zealand or Axios, that he's not sure what the former president was talking about in regards to X, Y, and Z. So there's clearly some um, disjuncture there in either perspective or um, what people are willing to say, but it's, it is Odd, Right. That he's being paraded around and sort of asked to speak at all these right wing China hawk think tanks.
0: Yeah. And I don't I don't discount the possibility that China was harassing him on some level or, you know, spying on him or even had dirt on him, maybe. I don't know. But like all of those things could be sort of true. And it could be true, too, that, you know, China wants to carve out some exclusive economic zone, you know, in in some part of the country all that could be true and yet panuela the former president's sort of alarmism could be like way 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 overstated like in the letter that he wrote at the end of his presidency that he's been parading around he talks about china being like an inevitable war an inevitable war if the congress doesn't pass the uh updated negotiation to the compact of free association which is like a really small amount of money, but it's a huge amount of money to FSM.
1: The country, yeah. Yeah.
0: Like it's the difference for the country between like bankruptcy and solvency, you know? But but
1: it's a problem, man. You know, it's like, because then, you know, these are agreements, these funding renegotiations of the economic provisions, because what if the geopolitical picture looks different, let's say like 60 years down the line, let's just play with this hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. Right? Then, we're, you know, the problem with that is that you're putting all this discursive weight into saying fund these economic provisions because of the geopolitical threat. But what happens that geopolitical threat sort of shifts? Does that mean that never mind, don't fund it in the future? You know what I'm trying to say? Like these are agreements between the United States and these these three countries, and so this is needs to be said to the listeners. You know, with the Compacts of Free Association, even if the United States decides not to fund you know, the economic provisions, not to renew the economic provisions, the sort of United States control, right? Uh, uh, and strategic denial, uh, controlling of defense, that still remains, that's in perpetuity, right? Of course they can terminate the compact, but this is not the entire compact being re- renegotiated. And so my largest problem is like maybe at this moment, it's like, oh, this is our chance, right? Mm-hmm. This is the rhetorical tool that we have to use China, China, China. But like, let's just say for any reason down the line, the picture looks different. You're going to have to what? Like, what is your how do you convince the United States Congress to fund a new economic uh, package if the geopolitical picture looks different? I think this is an agreement between the United States and these three countries. And out of respect for that agreement, that these economic provisions should be funded. I think that is the bottom line, right? It's about if the United States is calling them their you know very close partners, some have even went so far to say like part of the homeland, then treat them like that. Yeah. You know, don't don't just use the geopolitical moment of China as the justification for supporting. And so that's where I get into very interesting conversations with people because we'll for example, someone who thinks very differently from me, we may both agree that the economic packages should be funded should be renewed but for very different reasons right i'm coming at it from a hey this is part of the integrity of this relationship and they're coming from it from like if we don't do this then china gets a loophole into it Mm -hmm. so just where does that lead in the future and i think those sort of questions matter when we're talking about the future of micronesia man and you know so that's that's how i feel about the way that panuela is being created around
0: Yes, he's being he's being used no matter what the merits of what he's saying are. He's being used for political reasons. And there's also this like you don't want to lobby against the economic fulfillment of the relationship with the US because that would deny you funds, you know? So of course you want the money if there's money on the table, right? And you, for FSM and for t- particular, they n- literally need it. It's it's serious, you know. But you're also putting yourself in a box because, like you say, I mean, say the China strategic competition thing didn't bubble up because of new because Gaza happened instead of Gaza happening on October seventh or whatever. It happened in 2015, you know, and so the war on terror. Beca- remains the organizing paradigm for you, the mm-hmm. Pentagon. In that instance, the the war on terror doesn't have much to offer the Pacific Islands, you know, like that's an organizing construct for security and there ain't no money for that for you guys. Sorry, right? And it's reasonable to think that it's going to come swing back around again, like already the obsession with like wiping out Palestinians has made people like get distracted from China. And it's like, well, you'd love to see them dilute their obsession with China. You don't want it to be because they're obsessed with fucking genocide or whatever, you know, like this is insane. Like let's start a new middle East war. (laughs) So I guess I'm saying, I agree with you. Like, but it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult position. The countries are in a difficult position, an impossible position, because they're dependent on American military largesse. They're dependent on like national security Keynesianism, and they're, the the irony of that is you end up holding your own economic potential hostage, like displaced. There's an opportunity cost to military presence. You know, like I saw the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands. They had they were talking about the. There were, like, fisheries enclosures that commercial fishermen that have a right to fish in CNMI, they're CNMI citizens, and then they can't do it because the fishery was at risk for uh, a fire's range, you know, like for target practice, basically. And when you have that kind of uh, trade-off happening between, like, economic livelihoods and military use or military training or whatever it's it's a microcosm or a case study of how the presence itself or the expansion of the presence forces economic constraints on your situation even though when you're looking at a a a budget sheet or whatever maybe you don't see it you know the way you talk about it maybe it's not present
1: you know i think that's the thing we're also facing in Guam too, right like if Guam were to possess a transition into a sovereign political status, mm-hmm. you know, whether that be independence, free association, right, what role would the military have?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? I mean, independence doesn't mean that we're gonna cut off US military presence in Guam. Yeah. Right. But in doing so, what kind independence looks different, right? It looks different. It's like a giant box. You get to put things in it. And, you know, depending on what you put in it, it leads to the independent country that you're you're gonna eventually emerge as. And so those are, you know, I think the the unique moment for Guam is that we get to look at the rest of the world and learn, mm-hmm. right? Um, mistakes, opportunities, successes, failures, and so we'll be turning to our Micronesian brothers and sisters, of course, to see, you know, what were exactly that the successes, the failures, the opportunities, right, the obstacles um, in transitioning into a new political status. But I do think though that if Guam were to transition into a sovereign status. I think that we could definitely do our part in micronesia to make micronesia a more um to put it simply a micronesian a micronesia for micronesians man you know i think that's at the end of the day that's the goal of a lot of self-determination and a lot of the pacific islands regionalism that we saw Even you know it's just how do we create a pacific islands region where pacific islander interests and priorities are first. And I think that's the problem that we're having, uh, but it is the aspiration and is the work that we we move towards every single day, man. And I think, you know, you were there in Fiji too. You, you sense that, right? Yeah. You sense that, hey, even though we may be uh, small land-wise, we are large ocean states, man. You know, we have connections going back far. We need to preserve what we have, revitalize, perpetuate. And for me... Guam doesn't get to do that sort of thing to its fullest extent as an unincorporated territory that doesn't control its own foreign policy. That's right. Right. That doesn't craft its own destiny in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, as we think through these complicated issues that independent, freely associated States have to tackle, I'm here in Guam saying, when are we going to get the opportunity to tackle these hard questions? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a, it's, a, it's like, give me back my government so I can fight against it. That's a good Hawaiian friend told me once before, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, so. We talked about this in Fiji, too, but, you know, the, there's nothing that would be more of a real strategic buffer for the U.S. and for China in this larger rivalry between them. Nothing would be more of a like a reliable, durable strategic buffer than a Pacific region that's actually independent, that can make autonomous decisions, that can prevent itself in its autonomy. It ensures that it is not dominated by one or the other. And because it's not dominated by one or the other, it inherently serves as a kind of, you know, space maker for these great power idiots you know the the problem now is we're kind of captured in this paradigm where it's like we have to control or dominate because if we don't they will and we'll we'll call it denial or whatever but it's going to be domination straight up it's overmatch you know (laughs) it's it's more missiles more bases uh right more
1: missiles more bases more places ah so let's talk about
0: this bases places You, you had uh, some of the best talking points I heard in Fiji. W- what did you have to say? We've sort of hinted at it here, bases, places.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, if you, if you look at the history of Micronesia and sort of American strategic thought, this is, this is interesting too because at one point when Japan was the immediate post-World War II concern, right? Um, that's when the United States had plans to sort of blanket the entire Pacific, including the South Pacific, with bases. Mm-hmm. But as as over time, the Soviet Union became the primary occupation with the United States, you saw that plans for bases in the South Pacific retreated much more, but yet the position in the North Pacific went, was, still, um, was still lingering, right? And so I'll, I'll give you an example. In, in multiple military documents, what it will say is that the most important aspects of all of this were essentially Guam, the Philippines, right? Okinawa. And those are like the, the the top top 3. And so, but where does Micronesia fit in? Well, Micronesia essentially was seen as a place that even if the US military, the United States didn't want to fortify or build bases on these On these islands they needed to deny others from doing so right Mm -hmm. that's the whole gist of strategic denial um so that's why that's enshrined that's really inherent in the compacts of free association is making sure that the united states ability to do that is put into the relationship right it's sort of the dna of that relationship from the united states side and um for the three countries well they get essentially you know travel, visa-free travel into the United States where they could live, right? They're getting these, these funds, um, but the United States controls their defense, right? And so that's, that's the DNA of that relationship. Um, for the longest time, there weren't many military installations sans Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. What we're starting to see is the U.S. military operate more and more into something that, you know, we in the Pacific Center for Island Security just call D2, Right, distributed and dispersed, uh, distributed and dispersed operating concept. Um,
0: this is all the military people, services basically have some version of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the Air Force is, is uh, agile combat employment. And then each each service has their own sort of name for essentially a very similar theme of distributing locations, right, uh, uh, distributing capabilities, distrib- distributing materials across a larger swath of locations to complicate the sort of enemies targeting to mm-hmm. make it less predictable. Um, and so that's why before in Guam, used to have continuous bomber presence. Now it's called, you know, agile combat employment. And so what we what we're having here is that Micronesia is getting used for that purpose. Right. So if anyone who's been following this news will see that the military likes is really talking about Tinian and sort of this reclamation. That's the frame that they're using now. They're just reclaiming places that they've used before, right? In Peleliu and Palau, reclaiming the the airstrip in Tinian, reclaiming
0: CNMI, um, yeah,
1: yeah. There, so there's this this particular language, right, of reclaiming that unsettles me. But as you move, right, so putting attack more system, trying to make sure that in the event, and this is the important part here. Um, which is amazing from a Guam perspective, right? As, as a person from Guam, this is so awesome to hear that we got to get these places ready, you know, just in case Anderson Air Force Base is... <laughs> <It's> fucking
0: annihilated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that that's like the plan B contingency, right? If, if Guam is no longer really usable, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to use places like Tinian, right? Can't we're stop, gonna...
0: won't stop, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's essentially what we're, we're seeing right now. You know, the U S is helping with certain port infrastructure mm-hmm. and air infrastructure in places like Yap and the FSM. Right. And then you have, what's going on in Palau, you have uh, clearing land to reclaim, quote unquote, the airstrip in Tinian. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have all the stuff happening in Guam. And so the, the idea of distributing capabilities, Also means, though, that you're distributing risk. And I think that's a sort of animal part. Yeah. Um, It's when the current president of Palau, um, al Whips, essentially was saying, Put the Patriot system here in Palau. If you're going to put this radar system, we should be protected, just like Guam is. Mm -hmm. And that's quite frightening, right? Because others in Palau and also across the Pacific Islands were like, Whoa, that doesn't. That actually makes you more in danger. And it's so I think what happens that we've learned in Guam that we want to tell the rest of the Pacific is that uh, security, American military security is definitely not trickled down. That's something I like to say, you know, like there's this, I think this flawed idea that what is good for the security of the United States is inherently good for places like Guam. Mm-hmm. Often I think it's a zero sum equation. You know, I think that. The better something is for the U.S. military often comes at the price of Guam, you know. And so that's but that's the conversation that we need to have in the Pacific, especially as the U.S. wants to reenter, you know, making agreements with Papua New Guinea. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having this activity in Palau, going about in Tinian. Right. Uh, we just have to realize, as you said earlier, what are the opportunity costs of doing this? But. Also, what does this mean for the real hard, traditional, physical security of, of our homelands in a potential kinetic conflict? Like, Let's not rule that out. It's not necessarily alarmist, but if we're seeing us being carved into a spear, then maybe we need to start thinking about what happens if that spear is used. That's right. Right? So it's not an alarmist position to say, hey, in a potential kinetic conflict, how are we going to be affected? It's something we need to think about. Um And so that's why I think Micronesia in general, you know, security is very, very complex. Yes, climate change. Yes, food security, um, rising tides. All of that incredibly matters. Yeah. But geopolitics also incredibly matters. And I think that's sort of the...
0: The geopolitics is a major reason you can't address the other stuff. I mean, the other stuff that is so important is being held hostage in a way, you know?
1: Right. And so... It's pretty crazy. And so that's just the the position we're at in Micronesia, man, is that as things are distributed, as things are dispersed, don't just think of it as a uh, U.S. military complicating enemy targeting, being less predictable, but they're also distributing risk. Mm -hmm. And we as Islanders are the ones who are going to absorb that risk. And I will say the other thing is that what is being done to prepare for war can uh, can also be very destructive, right? Even if it doesn't reach the kinetic level, The clearing of land, the restructuring of economies, right? The infiltration, the penetration of hegemonic ideas into an island can be very destructive, even if that place is not necessarily used in the war down the line. The preparation to be used in the war has a destructive element to it. And I think quite often, and this is why I've said multiple forums, I'm very confused sometimes with the way that we often speak about peace, right? Like, what does that mean, Mm -hmm. right? From a U.S. strategy perspective, does peace mean like just heavy deterrence and the absence of war? Because usually that's your definition of peace to get to that point. You have to fuck up a bunch of violence first to do that. And so, you know, yeah, that's, that's just where we're at.
0: Yeah, the, there's just no I mean, this is meta, but there's no peace and there's no security when all the stuff that you do in the name of security requires the destruction and domination of others. US strategy sits on top of the societies and bodies of the Pacific, holding them at risk. My consciousness about this started shifting in the North Korean nuclear crisis, because as you probably well remember, fucking North, ever since like 2013 Guam Anderson air force base has been target number one for North Korea. In the event that they get into the shit with the U.S., you know, and North Korea doesn't want a war because it would it loses in that war. But that doesn't mean the war don't happen. And when we had Trump in 2017 and early 2018, we were close, dude. And North Korea was threatening to bracket fire missiles, enveloping specifically Guam, you know, and Guam had no say whatsoever in that. Guam's Guam's existence was at risk and it was up to like luck and the whims of Trump, you know, that's not a great position to be in. And it's certainly not a reasonable position to put anyone in.
1: I think for a lot of us, that's our whole point is that we don't get to craft our own destiny and reputation in the world.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's predetermined for us. And so I think we in Guam should get that opportunity. You know, it, our lives are like literally at stake here. Right. Literally.
0: And Guam is, I mean, arguably the most important, I don't want to play status games, but the most important site strategy wise within the non-sovereign Pacific. Right. Oh yeah. Which also includes American Samoa and CNMI. You have to include French Polynesia, New Caledonia, which is French colonies And then you have like the semi-sovereign, you know, freely associated states. It's like they're they're nations at home, but not not when it comes to foreign policy. The power of that label, non-sovereign Pacific, to make us like recognize that these are not just like individual insular case, legal bureaucratic one-offs, but like there's a large chunk of the region, the largest region in the world that doesn't control its own fate you know and i have reasons for thinking that's very important which we've sort of hinted at what 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 makes that so important for you the non-sovereign pacific
1: there there are multiple reasons so i think if we're looking at the sort of machinations of um, outside powers in the region Mm -hmm. these non their non-sovereign territories are where they operate yeah It's, it's where they get a lot of their agenda and so you know, it, it allows a particular identity too for these for these countries, right? I mean, the United States will say that it has, you know, not, not only that it is a Pacific power, right? As I can see the title of your book there, but also, you know, um, we have a right, we have a place in the Pacific Islands, and a lot of that, you know, the the reference Hawaii, the the reference Guam, American Samoa, the and and so I think it does give certain powers this. Identity of feeling like they belong. Mm-hmm. And they should belong. That's one. But also, you know, if you look at France, for example, the importance of like France holds on to all of these territories, especially in the Pacific, is like their, their EUZ would be close to nothing without their territories, yeah. right? So they have like an economic interest to not let these places yeah, go. Like nickel so concessions
0: easy. and stuff, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, New Caledonia, you got French Polynesia, you know, we have Guam, the Sinamai, American Samoa, um, not often included in the conversation, but you have like Rapa Nui, Easter Island, right? Mm, which is a dependency of Chile. I think you have like Tokilau, which I got to admit, New Zealand uh, and Tokelau, there are like hierarchies of how severe this relationship is, to be quite honest. But yeah, there is Tokilau um, and, you know, Pitcairn from the British. Um, you know, am I missing any? If I, I mean,
0: if, if the Australia agreement goes through Tuvalu, like there's, you know, like there's the the Australian and New Zealand sort of hierarchical relationship to the Pacific is weird. I don't want to shit where I eat or whatever, but the, the, <laughs> the, those two countries provide exclusionary defense of select nations within the Pacific. And the kind of like with the freely associated states model it's kind of nuanced but it is unquestionably exclusionary and hierarchical you know and it's maybe like softer or more benign or more mutually beneficial than some of america's arrangements but it is not sovereign equality under international law like nobody's should be under nobody should be misunderstanding that part you know So like you could make this non-sovereign Pacific quite, quite large.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, so there, there are like layers to that. It's Mm -hmm. like, number one, I think the independent Pacific has a place in helping the non-sovereign Pacific Mm -hmm. um, reach a political status that has a full measure of self-government. I think Mm -hmm. that's clear, especially for those of us who, you know, there are sort of decolonization conversations. Um, But, before reaching that point of like official political status change, how do we in the non sovereign and Pacific work together to have these conversations amongst each other? Right. Like what is our role in the world? What is our role in the Pacific? I, I often think that we don't talk to each other enough, you know, of course, there's the Anglophone Francophone divide, but there are easy ways to bridge that. Yeah. Just in general, like here we are in the Pacific, just sort of sitting here, not having, you know, not being even freely associated, not being independent. And I think for technical, scientific, cultural, we may have, you know, we're part of the region and identity way, but like what can we do to help boost the sort of joint foreign policy? That was really a core characteristic of Pacific Islands regionalism for quite a while. You know, Mm -hmm. I still think there's unfinished work. And I think we can bring, um, there's a lot of potential for us to bring to that table of joint foreign policy, joint diplomacy to tackle larger global issues affecting the Pacific islands. But as of right now, you know, we're often viewed with suspicion and and rightfully so, to be quite honest, you know, like who is actually controlling the agenda um, is something that we have to. Because they might view you
0: as being a voice for the empire or something like that.
1: Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. We have to, and there, there, there are possibilities in which that, can happen in another future you know yeah um so we have to sort of prove to the pacific that we want to interact with our own brothers and sisters to represent our interests first so when i talk about it from a guam perspective like what is in guam's interest you know we're talking from guam for guam that's what i like to say we're not trying to you know it's not like the american the governor of american samoa who was pretty much like let us into the pacific islands forum united states and we'll uh We'll will bid your we'll bid your doing and he just over
0: like, he he overtly said that, right? Like he's oh, like yeah, explicitly we will speak on odd. behalf of the US interests. Like
1: Yeah, and it was just like man, that's that's not what we should be doing because that adds to the skepticism. Yeah. Right? So I think I think there's a lot of potential potential for the non sovereign Pacific to be more connected. Maybe we need to have a giant conference of all of us, you know. Maybe we need be to close. start thinking yeah, yeah. about What are our non-sovereign shared issues? How do we work together for solutions? Um, And that's something that I really wanna work on now. And I think a lot of that has been percolating in my mind, but after Fiji, it was just sort of went to the forefront again of priority listing for me, man. And so um, that's the importance of it is like, what happens if the non-sovereign Pacific gains sovereignty? How can we contribute, right? But all of that is like the regional architecture has to have a way to sort of help us get there. That's my stance on it.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense, man. That's well said. Like my thing on the non-sovereign Pacific, I mean, I co-sign everything you just said, but it's kind of an actually existing hypocrisy, contradiction at the heart of liberalism. If you zoom out all the way, not only does it give the lie to the rhetoric of like free and open Indo-Pacific, whatever, you know, not only is it a legacy of empire that still fucking exists while people go to shopping malls and think everything's all good, right? But on top of all of that, it's the actual denial of self-determination that gets weaponized for great power politics, for war-making. It's sacrificing, like I said, people's Pacific people's societies and bodies to make the war machine happen the death toll that is inherent to perpetuating us primacy and perpetuating rivalries. That's basically a losing proposition for democracy, but all that strategy stuff is dependent on perpetuating the denial of equality and democracy in real time, in peacetime right now, you know, and only by, only by addressing the non-sovereign, pacific's lack of freedom are we going to make the pacific more secure only by addressing the lack of freedom are we going to be able to rein in and restrain out of control militarism that's taken over america's soul there's a way in which i don't want to say like the pacific unlocks the the universe. You know, but but kind of like if we're if we're going to like approach the Pacific as if we're, it's just a sacrifice place. It's a zone that we sacrifice for our strategic interests. Everyone's going to die. No one's going to be secure. You know, we might as well hand the keys to Trump at that point. Like that's. Uh, yeah. Really important, really important concept of or identification Right. That there's a, a a common lack of sovereignty, even though the terms of the sovereignty are all sort of nuanced, you know.
1: There's this uh, there's this academic named Peter Harris, and uh, he wrote a really good piece, primarily based upon like Chagos, right, um, the Chagosians, but really.
0: Oh, I saw this. That, yeah.
1: Yeah is the is is the rules based international order just selective rules applied in certain situations? Right. It's is, is it organized? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it is.
0: Correct, sir. Correct.
1: So, you know, we're seeing that in Guam, man. You know, like free and open Indo-Pacific, protecting advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific. A lot of that is predicated upon having Guam be this like bastion of uh, stability and a contingency plan for the United States military, right? We have Guam is like the physical embodiment of deterrence. Guam is a logistical hub. Guam is a place that where you can assure allies, right? It it adds to the credibility of the United States commitment to the Pacific by saying we are right nearby. And so there's a lot that Guam offers the United States that, you're right, is predicated upon Guam being a territory. Mm -hmm. Because while even if Guam were to be an independent country that had U.S. military relationships, that is different from being a non-sovereign unincorporated territory Yeah, because you don't have to play the mother may I routine here in Guam, right? You don't have to gain consent in Guam. And so there was, for example, when um, there was this random report, and they were talking about where should we place like ground-based IRMs. And they were like, Oh, this, this be is the ideal. Fun. This location. is the next thing. Yeah. Right. This is the, but if these places, Japan, they don't want to host it. Well, we have Guam, and we have, we can invoke the compacts for the freely associated states, right? So, like, we're the perpetual fallback plan, man. Um, and that's why we're so important. I always say that the importance of Guam lies in how like unimportant we are in many ways, from like a global scale. You know, I'm trying to say like islands are often important because they're unimportant. It's the same why same reason why like places like, uh, Kalama or Johnson Atoll get to just be. Deteriorated with chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, biological weapons in the past, and no one really says a word, for the most part, right? Except for like Pacific Islanders at that time. It's it's sort of this island paradox. Our reason for existence in a lot of these sort of is serving as nodes in a uh, what ruth Denzil calls this networked empire, right? Guam, Diego Garcia, like, were these places where the U.S. doesn't have to go and like physically colonize and annex territory in larger places where there'll be headache, mm-hmm. they can do it for these nodes. And that's sort of the sad existence of islands in U.S. strategic thought.
0: Well, if there's, I don't know if this is ending on a positive note, but this concept, the logic of distribution and dispersal, like spreading out, I, I'm, I'm hoping, but not at all optimistic that, By spreading out that pain, it's more geography that's being held at risk of attack now, you know? And so it's not all just concentrated in Guam anymore. Hopefully that can be a site in the same way that like capitalist exploitation, it's a global thing. And so global workers in theory could kind of unite to take control of their fates. You know, there's a way in which, the security state spreading the pain across a larger expanse of the Pacific. Maybe that's a basis for countries to wake up and be like, we're, we're in this devil's bargain constantly mm-hmm. and we need, we need the, the hegemon declining as it is to come up with better fucking strategy than just setting us all on fire. Like this is not, this is not good strategy. You know, it's one we can debate about American the merits of American hegemony, if it's being done competently, but it's not. It's being done in a very sacrificial, exclusionary way, uh, and that's that's right. gonna yeah, it's gonna end badly for all of us. So like, hopefully, dispersal provides a common point of reference for more nations and more peoples who are being held at risk. You know.
1: I'm hoping, and, you know, that's that's the the problem with it will just be the economics that are involved, right? Sort of like, oh, with us comes money, mm-hmm. comes jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if empirically the, the evidence may be muddy, right? Yeah. That, that discourse is powerful. The way they
0: calculate this stuff makes it look a certain type of way.
1: Yes, but but I, I agree. There's never um, remaining hopeful, not in like a very, I don't know, not in a, like uh i don't know the word i'm trying to say but you know not in like a naive way but just saying like hey if things are determined the way they're determined right now that's why i find uh, what is that rebecca soli says like hope in the dark Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's (laughs) it's in the light and it seems like we know where our fate is so maybe there's some hope in the dark man. yeah
0: all right man um i'll let you go this has been awesome a great education yeah well and we're obviously going to be in touch